This is for all the girls who grew up without strong geek role models to help them discover their geek dreams. For everyone who's ever been quizzed about their video game knowledge because those are things. Geek Hearing is working to bring female identifying geeks into the prime to be the role models, dreams, and voices. About to show these boys how we do it. Higher, further, faster, baby. It's not about deserve. I'm not an owl! A girl has no name. There is something supernatural at work here. It's about what you believe. Did I stop on your mom? Guardian Leviosa. Now on. You do as I do. May the odds be ever in your favor. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Welcome to Geek Herring, a critical geek culture podcast where we talk the good and the bad parts of being a chick in a male-dominated environment. Hi, I'm Amanda, and with me today is my awesome, hilarious, wonderful, and Isabel-wearing co-host, Monica. Hi, Monica. <laughs> You just confused the shit out of me. I'm like, what the fuck is she saying? Why is she saying Isabel wearing? But I am wearing an Isabel today. Or at least I'm wearing a hoodie with her face on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not wearing her entirely, but just her face. That's also not really smart, um, but never mind. How are you, Amanda? How are you? I'm good. And I might have good news that we might have fixed the internet. Yay! Not like I've been here for five months and it's only just getting fixed now, but hey, maybe it's working. Yay! See what my dad does for Tom. So it should it be fixed already now or will it be fixed soon? It should be fixed now, according to them. Okay, cool. According to the Philippine customer service, which yes. is no shade, but just kind of far away from Canada is what I mean. <laughs> I'm very confused how they can fix our Canadian internet from Philippines. Um, I'm very happy that they can, but I'm confused how it's possible. Yeah, I have questions. <laughs> Magic yeah. is a good pointer, that's for sure. Yes, definitely. And I am really excited today because we have a guest on. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, excited to be here. Yay. So Kate Bullock our guest today and she is a community and convention organizer with a passion for creating safer and more inclusive spaces within the tabletop rpg community she's one of the main organizers of breakout gaming convention community manager for magpie games co-owner of unicorn motorcycle games and the outgoing president of the indie game developer network holy crap you can find her blog Blue Stockings Organic Gaming, filled with an in-depth analysis of the gaming community and what we can do to make it better. And this is why we've got her on today. So Kate is a consultant for safety and inclusion in the RPG world, as well as a content editor for RPGs to ensure they meet industry standards about inclusion and safety. You can find her games, Crossroad Carnival, which apparently is a little bit like The Last Unicorn. We're down with that. Savior, remember me and more on drive-thru and see her work in Atlas and Amelia, Flames of Freedom and After the War. I do all that. Wow. Can, I just, can I just ask what kind of potion they give out over there in Canada that all the people I know from over there have like 50 different kinds of jobs and do 20,000 things and still seem to have their shit together? What the fuck? I can't even, I don't even know how to do life sometimes. And then I read all of this and I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing. It's so great. It's really cold, and so we're really busy indoors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we don't spend a lot of time outside. Plus, we have a lot of nuclear power plants around this area. Mm. So that could. I'm not. Plant. I'm not saying it's related, but you know, <laughs> there's a correlation. Not not. <laughs> it's yeah. a correlation. It's like with the storks and the babies. 
that there is a correlation <laughs> when there are a lot of storks flying around, but you can't really say it's the causality of it. But you know, a correlation is there. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to be here. It's been a while since I've been a podcast and I was really delighted to be asked to join. We're very excited to have you here. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, um, we are doing Tabletop RPG Month. Uh, as of recording, it's December, and December is TTRPG Month. Uh, thanks to a wonderful suggestion from our moderator, Gemma, uh, who you also might know as Canadian Book Girl. And she was like, I have the perfect guest for you, and put us in touch with Kate. So Kate, are you ready to get into this podcast episode with some rapid fire questions? Absolutely. I'm ready. Let's go. Woohoo. Take it away, Monica. Okay. So, Kate, where are you from? I'm currently living in southwestern Ontario, but I lived in Toronto for about 16 years. Oh, nice. What are your pronouns? She, her. Cool. Um, when are you a geek since? So, maybe a year or a story of your first geeky experience? Um, well, my first TTRPG experience was when I was turning 14. Um, my dad had just died. And so it was just my mom and I, I'm an only child. And for my birthday, she bought me the third 3.0, like orange box set and let me run her and one friend through an adventure where she got to save a unicorn. Um, and then after that I GM'd. So I've been GMing before I even played, um, for 28 wow. years now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah, so that is amazing. Because my mom's cool. <laughs> yeah, throwing in the deep end there with GMing right off as well. <laughs> yeah, well, she doesn't run or play games. She's like, I'm not creative. Um, but she'll like read everything I write, even though she doesn't understand it. It's really cute. Aww, I love that. Best support, mom support. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your biggest influences? So, books, movies, TV shows, teachers, anything. Um, well, I actually decided to come up with a list of the things that really heavily influenced me as a community organizer, because that's kind of what I'm most known for. So these are just some books I recommend everyone read because they'll just make you a better person, but also because community is incumbent upon each person being a better person. Um, Mm -hmm. so the first one is I hope we choose love by Kai Chen Tom, uh, conflict is not abuse by Sarah Shulman, nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, and are we done fighting by Matthew Legg? Each of those have a very different and unique message. I put I Hope You Choose Love by Kai Chen Tom first because um, her book is really indicative of what's happening in the TTRPG space right now in terms of social media and Twitter. And a lot of it has to actually do specifically to do with queer social media spaces and in how in those spaces we can be quite we're all quite traumatized. So as a result, we end up hurting each other quite deeply. Um, And that's creating this really unhealthy community space. So that book is really just about like breaking those things down and providing fundamental steps on how to do it healthier. Um, And I think that's really important for all nerd spaces, but especially for the ones I'm in because they hurt me the most. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) So true. Um, Thanks for sharing those books. Like, I think it's really important that you brought them specifically here and I'm going to put them in the show notes. So when this episode comes out, make sure that you check the show notes because we'll have links to them all for you. So you don't have to remember names or anything. (laughs) And I already love what the first book is even called. Like, because I think if we all would choose love a bit more then life would be so much different, but yes. Okay. And what are your current geeky pastimes? Hobbies, huh? Um... (laughs) Well, when you can squeeze them in into the other (laughs) list of things that you have going on. (laughs) Sometimes I play role-playing games. Um, (laughs) Mostly I play video games. I have uh, guinea hens, which is kind of nerdy. I think a lot of, like, 
study time figuring out how to care for them the best. Uh, I knit, I crochet, I quilt. Um, I do metal stamping, so I make little cute geeky medallions and stuff. Ooh. I do brush lettering uh, and watercolor. So a lot of art. Not only do you have like 30,000 different jobs, you also have like three billion hobbies that are all artsy and super time consuming. So <sighs> I don't know how Monica's you Monica's just like mind blowing <laughs> yeah, right that, now. That, that's, what it, that's what's going on. I'm like, I sit in front of my computer all day. I don't know how I can do other things. I love learning. It's one of my favorite things. I'm always signed up for new courses. And one of the things I try to do every year is learn three new skills. Um, mm -hmm. So as a result, I have a lot of hobbies simply because I'm like, this year I'm going to learn tarot. And that's how I learned restorative justice. And that's how I learned um, metal stamping and quilting. And like every year I do a creative and intellectual and a self-care skill. And um nice so, i love that a lot <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like my new year's resolution it's like how am i gonna grow as a person next year that's amazing i'm also a life coach so like don't read into it too much this is my job <laughs> don't read into it too much <laughs> my job is to sound inspiring i love you <laughs> like we're just at the introduction and i'm like hey, will you marry me <laughs> sorry tom <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that was a good, that was a short engagement with your fiance there. I know. In a second. Jeez. <laughs> All the while he's watching. That's great. I, at least I'm open about it, you know? <laughs> Sorry to make it awkward. Kate, what's the geeky thing we're talking about today? <laughs> um, we were talking about changing TTRPG spaces within Canada because I do that, but I also work in the larger gaming sphere kind of internationally, like I work for an American company. Um, and what does that mean in terms of how do we engage that space? How do we change that space? And what does it look like as a woman in that space? Which is, I think, a summary of what we're talking about. Yeah, amazing. I'm very excited. And going to totally out ourselves here, Monica and I are pretty new in the TTRPG world. Um, and by pretty new, I mean, Monica will tell her story in a second. Um, it is a very short one. And I've just, been, I've played D&D &D a few times. Um, I've just joined a campaign, which is hopefully going to last longer than three sessions, um, which is the, the peak that we've had so far because everybody drops out of our sessions. So That's normal, actually. Most games aren't played more than three times. Wow. Good to know. There's interesting stats as well, though. <laughs> I think yeah, so. <laughs> we love stats. And Monica? Well, I've never played D&D &D or anything like that before in my life. I've watched Gemma DM um, two sessions on stream, which was just number one, scary, not scary as fuck because, because it's scary, but because I was like, how the fuck do they even do this? Like, how, <laughs> how, how, how does even the math work? And what is even going on? It was super interesting to watch because of the storytelling. And you're like, how can the person come up with so much amazing stuff? And everybody follows along. So it was really interesting to watch. But like, I'm terrified of playing it because I'm like, there is that what? I, like, what? <laughs> so that's, that's my experience of two. I watched two streams and... Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I think it's something to consider when you're nervous about starting a new skill set because role playing, as much as we think it's an art form, and it is, but all art is a skill set. So you're automatically not going to be stellar at it when you first start, even if you are talented at it. 
you will grow that skill set every time you use it because you'll build that like set of neurons in your brain, right? That's how neuroplasticity works. So the sooner you engage with it, the better you will get at it automatically. I like your approach. I should write that on my Rachel or something. <laughs> you should write it on your forehead and every time you look in the mirror. <laughs> well, I don't do that very often, so I can't do that either. I look and see more on the fridge than in the mirror, to be honest. <laughs> very true. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, okay, tell us, like, everything that you love about TTRPGs. Just, like, geek out with us for a minute. That is such a complicated question um, because I've been in it long enough, long enough now, like for the past three years, I really wasn't playing any games. I was just doing so much on the production side that you stop playing. And when you do play, it's always work. So I would play a game of Velvet Glove, but as a play tester providing feedback so we could make the game better and workshopping the game as we went. We just released One Child's Heart this year and I was the safety editor and the project manager. So I played and ran a lot of it, but it was always business. Um, so I've become a little bit disconnected, I think, from the ethos of what I loved about it. And the ethos that I love about gaming, one is it has the ability to build empathy. So it teaches you how to literally stand in someone else's shoes because you're playing a character. Mm. And games have the possibility of teaching you about other people's experiences by providing launching pads for your creativity around specific scenarios and ideas. So you can have a game like um, Cartel, for example, which is a heavy example, but it's a game where you play um, narco fiction. So you're in Mexico, you play Mexican people who are involved in a cartel. You are drug dealers and drug runners and spouses and friends of a family involved in that drug scene. And the game heavily talks about why these people are stuck in this situation and why they can't get out. Um, and it took, like it doesn't allow you to be a white person. So this this game is a really big empathy tool, right? Uh, with some heavy content, it's super it's super dramatic and telenovela like and really fun. Besides that, <laughs> um, it is it's super family drama. I didn't see it coming, but when I played it, I was like, "What just happened?" <laughs> um, Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think games at their core for me have the ability to make us better people. Um, and on top of that, as a therapeutic life coach, it has the opportunity to allow us to process emotions and experiences in a safer way uh, with healthy guidelines and boundaries, like big asterisks there. So that's what I love about it. I love its uh, inherent possibility for making the world better. I love that. I actually have chills. <laughs> Can I just, and I mean, that's kind of a deeper question for maybe later on, but I just want to throw it out there. How much do you miss not being able to play it as a, for joy only? And how, how? Um, I don't know, it's so complicated. I've been gaming a lot this year because it turns out there's this pandemic and people are home. <laughs> and so we play more um, and I've been GMing a lot too. And the part that I miss about playing for the sake of playing is the companionship that comes out of it. Those moments of joy and laughter and realization. And I'm like, I'm not even that in it for the good story anymore, which is like my artistic self used to say I was here for the, the beauty of the story. <laughs> uh, and now I'm like, oh, I had a good time and that was fun. And that's a newer experience for me. So I don't miss. I don't miss the hustle of it. I don't miss the stress of it because being a GM is quite stressful. I do miss like getting together with my friends, having some tea and snacks and like telling a good story together. 
um, and the emotional bonding that comes from that, because like our brains don't differentiate between imagination and memory, it turns out, which is why a police officer asks you the same question 11 times by like time 12, you'd be like, I don't know anymore, because you've imagined it so many times, it's now real to you. So when you like play a character who has a relationship in a meaningful way with another character, you end up emotionally bonding with that player, even if you don't want to, because your brain doesn't get that it's a story. Your brain's like, no, we're doing this thing. It's an experience. I um, like that. And I miss those mm. connections. I think they're really fascinating in a really interesting way. Um, so I miss doing that because now I just play with everybody that I love already. Like I don't see too many new people <laughs> at my table. Um, which is great for development because you trust their development skills. Um, but it means there's nothing that comes out of left field anymore <laughs> where you're like, wait, what? Um, and I miss that a little. I definitely miss the, like the random gem of a person you find at a convention who just gets you and like syncs with you and tells a good story with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can see that. And I can see like getting comfortable with the people that you play with regularly as well because like I think we find that when we play for example werewolf together like there's a general group of us that all kind of play together at the same time and it's like nothing is surprising anymore yeah yeah so I miss that um my my group of people I play with are all excellent gamers and so the story always goes somewhere interesting it's never boring um but we're we're not all into games for the same reasons and so like I'm in it because I want to be really sad like I love sad games (laughs) Um, I want to be kind of like low-key super upset at the end of it I want you to rip my heart out and smash it a little and then try to feed it back to me and make me want it like that's what I want (laughs) that's how I jam like I'm mean um but like my one friend really wants kind of comedy and gonzo and I'm like okay all right I guess we'll play Aegon and I'll go kill some harpies it's fine um so that difference I find really interesting whereas before I used to run the Toronto area gamers which was about 3,000 people in a gaming community in Toronto and um if I put up a game of like Bluebeard's Bride which is like gothic feminine terrible horror um people who really wanted that dark feminine gothic experience would show up to the table. It wouldn't be like my three friends who are amusing me and my one friend who's like not into it, but we'll play it anyway, you know? Mm. So I miss that too, but I love my friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that we don't love you, that people, just because they're a different interest at a certain point that you don't like love your friends for who they are, even though you wish you had some other experiences occasionally too. Like that, yeah. that can all be valid at the same time. Yeah. Most of my friends won't play Bluebeard's Bride for really good reasons. Like I totally get it. But I'm also like, I want to terrify you with the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the, the way to experience, that's the way to experience it. Like in a game, like, and be aware that it's actually something that's also happening at the same time yeah bluebeard's bride is really interesting i don't know if you're familiar with it as a game um so it's a game where you as a group each play a facet of a woman's personality so she's the bride uh and she just married this wealthy merchant who's named bluebeard and in the classic story of bluebeard he takes her home on their wedding night 
and immediately leaves and gives her the keys and says, my darling, I have to go away on business, but you can explore the house and do whatever you want. Just don't go into this one room. And the bride explores the house and she finds sexy things and terrifying things and horrible things. And finally, she goes to the last room and unlocks the door. And they are hanging on meat hooks are his five previous wives. So in the what? original fairy tale, Squidward shows up and kills her. And the moral of the story is obey your husband. <laughs> That took so, a turn, that story. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, fairy tale. Um, and in this game, you play the bride exploring the house and the rooms and trying to collect evidence on whether or not you think your husband is a serial killer. Spoiler, he is. Or if you're like, no, he's innocent. He's misunderstood. Um, and then you decide if you go into the final room. Uh, it's, it's like um, Crimson Peak feeling if that makes sense as a as a touch point it's very feminine gothic horror woman exploring a haunted house it's a ghost story at the end of the day but like really what you're doing is like terrifying the bride with sexism (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like uh, what virtual birdie said in her chat here she said i don't think i need ttrpgs to be terrified of the patriarchy and i'm like same pretty <laughs> same yeah um, <laughs> and that's too like especially as a, a trauma victim and that kind of stuff but it's actually quite cathartic um and it's a fun ghost story um, mm. it's really cool though because sometimes dudes play it and they're like holy shit i had no idea that that's what i mean when i said before that People can experience it who are not experience it who are not aware that it's going on, even though it's going on like by games like this. And mm-hmm. it's often the case that people have like traumatic experiences that they need to go back into a similar situation, but in a safe space, if like in a in a safe protected. Yeah. I mean, I don't think if you're a rape victim, Bluebeard's Bride no. is necessarily the healthiest game for you if you're not already in therapy and everyone at the table hasn't bought in. Like, I wrote a lot about this because I do play mm. games that touch on my drama. Mm. Um, but it requires you to be doing active work. Like, you can't go into Bluebeard's Bride and be like, I'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, but I love the game. I think it's really cool. And I've seen some people do some cool stuff with it. But it is at the end of the day, a ghost story. Like you can definitely skirt around a lot of stuff that's on your, like not on the table for you. Um, but it is a cool game to, to dig into and experience. Again, yeah. I like weird games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about weird games. It's okay. <laughs> so how did you transition from like being more of like the player to the creator? I was a convention organizer and community organizer starting when I was 19. Um, so I started quite young with the Toronto area gamers and we were involved in things like Fan Expo Canada, which was the big convention in Toronto for hobbyists. And we ran the game. One of my best friends growing up. Sorry, volunteered there for years. Um, I might actually know them. It depends on where they volunteered, but, um, tag ran the gaming rooms there. And so you met a lot of designers and a lot of peers ended up as your designer friends. And when you hang out with designers, you automatically kind of absorb their designeriness. And eventually you start hacking and you start modifying and you start changing the game. Like any D&D DM who has done homebrew is a game designer. I don't care what anyone says. Um, or anyone who's come up with a hack or anyone who's created new stats or a new spell. Like all of that is game design because you're considering the mechanics, the mechanical weight, you play test it, you see how it goes. That's game design. 
So essentially, if you play long enough, you usually end up subverting or moving or changing or doing something with a mechanic somewhere that you, you do design, even if we don't call you a designer. Uh, so I started doing that work. And one of the people I was dating at the time was a designer. And so and I inherently kind of started getting involved in behind the scenes stuff. And then eventually I wrote um, a hack of monster hearts called the Crossroads Carnival. And it was a hot mess. It was very terribly designed. It was my first time. It was my my little, you know, heartbreaker game. And I brought it to a convention called Metatopia, which is a game design festival in November out of New Jersey. And uh, you put it down on the table and anyone can sign up to play. And I put it on the table and Mark Diaz Truman, who had written Urban Shadows and like was head of Magpie Games with them, his partner, Marissa, their co-founders, uh, sat down to play my game. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? I can't run this game for Mark Diaz Truman. <laughs> and I had run another game that day for Jason Morningstar, Fiasco, like people with names. Um, it turns out they're all people. They're really nice. And, uh, but I had this like panic. And then Mark was like, I think your game is a hot mess, Kate. And it was. Um, but I think there's something here. Like, I think there's something important you're doing here. And uh, then they later contacted me and mentored me through my first Ashcan release. Nice. Um, yeah. And that was a two year process and they were very patient with me. And Sarah Doom was my mentor. Uh, she was one of the writers of Bluebeard's Bride. And uh, it was a really cool experience. And from there, like I've just worked on small design and big design and I've kind of done a plethora of things. I still haven't released like a full version of a game I've written, like a big full game. Um and that's okay. I've done so many other things that have really made me a better designer. But that that transition period is just like if you hang out with people and you play games long enough, it in air, like it happens. Mm. Um, the minute you start changing something in a game to make it what you want, you're designing. So the line is thinner than people think. I I like what you say that because I think there is so often in, in also in life and not even only in game development like people tell you you can't do things even though you use the same skills that people with a certain profession or a certain something are are doing and why does it make you less of a talented whatever like designer writer just because you don't have the like education and I know that the education education for it is really important as well but that doesn't mean that you're at the same time, less valid or worth, are worth less than other people who have been um, doing it longer. No, and it doesn't mean that you can't embrace new people into the field who clearly have a have something very good going on with what they're doing and what they're what they're passionate about. Because that's often important to have people who have the passion for it as well um, in the field that you're working at. Yeah, it's a huge topic of discussion right now in TTRPGs because there's a group of Uh, younger designers who are designing in a different way than the established way. And they are constantly invalidated and told that what they're doing isn't good or real or professional mm -hmm. enough. Um, like they're professional artists. Um, and it is different to some degree than what people are doing where they have massive teams and years of development and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But that's a, a product release versus an art piece release. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really sad to see established designers not take that art seriously because it mm -hmm. doesn't follow the pathway that the rest of us took if you know what I mean mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of gatekeeping around the term designer who qualifies and who doesn't and I think that's really ridiculous but 
is that one of the like barriers to access that you're trying to that, that you are working to change um is that where your specialties or is yours more on like the actual inclusion and community management like tell us tell us more i mean like yes both it just depends on which space i'm operating in um I mean, as a person who's now in my mid-30s, who's got a certain level of reputation and as a result, power structure and skill set, um, I can also gatekeep, right? Like there are times mm-hmm. where I'm being ignorant too and I, I fuck it up and I misstep or whatever. So like, I want to say, yes, I am working on those things, but I'm also inherently aware that sometimes I'm the one in the way. Mm. Um, and I think that's really key to understand about yourself is like nothing you ever do will be good enough because... Um, like as my one friend put it, um, we are fish and the water is racism. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we live embroiled in these oppressive tactics um, and societal systemic issues that we aren't separate from. We are mm-hmm. within it. We, we live off of it. And so to say I'm working on those things, it's like, yes, I am. Um, as breakout convention organizer, I make sure I invite designers who miss necessarily don't get that street cred because fuck it. I want them to have that street cred and they're going to be a guest at a convention. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because I'm so sick of it. But at the same time, I sometimes will tweet something and not think and hurt people. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the key is that like, you need to see that and then work on it. Right. Um, in terms of inclusion and diversity, the same thing goes for breakout. I try really hard to give the spots that I have and for guests and that kind of stuff to people whose voices don't get to be heard as often, um, people who need an invitation to the table and aren't getting one, people who, if they do have an invitation to the table, are kind of being crowded out by more dominant voices. Um, so I do try to spend a lot of time ensuring that I invite those people to the table. But just because they're invited to the table doesn't mean the table culture is welcoming. Mm-hmm. So part of what I also do is try to create policy and procedure around that in any space I'm in to ensure that there are protections in place and ways that they can access protection if things are happening. Uh, But I am a kind of cis white woman. So my understanding of intersections is limited and it is through the lens of my own experiences. So in order for me to do that work effectively, I need to surround myself and have a team of people with me who come from varying intersections um, than just my own experiences, because I will fuck it up, right? Um, and I've done that. I fucked things up. I've, I've definitely done things where I've been racist and not even realizing it. Um, so I'm really grateful to all the people I have in my life um, who put up with my bullshit and make me a better person. <laughs> uh, and who let me do the same for them, right? Um, so that's a huge part of the work I do is I go into spaces that welcome me or invite me in, or that I'm a creator in already. And I end up creating a lot of restorative justice policies because we all hurt each other a lot (laughs) and creating steps for healthier environments so that we can learn from those mistakes, but not automatically say you're, you're evil because you missed up, you did a misstep. Um, while also trying to create spaces that are healthier enough to oust abusers quite quickly, which is very common in RPGs. Um, they stick around forever and there's no way to remove them currently. There is no way to remove abusers? No, not in, not in indie RPGs. Okay. Um, so I think part of the issue is we are not a community. We are an industry and we are independent industry and an arts industry. So we don't have an authority 
we don't have anyone to go to to be like, this company is protecting this abuser, or this person is an abuser, or this company is underpaying, right? Like, we don't have anybody to be like, these people are, are fuckers. Like, we don't have anyone to say that okay. to. Um, we have social media, but that doesn't stop people from buying their products. We can't remove yeah. their products from shelves because there's no shelves. Their shelves are like drive through RPG or they sell things out of their own store. Like we can't blacklist mm-hmm. them. We can't remove them. Um, we can ruin their reputation for a year and then they're kind of back in the game. Mm-hmm. And um, also I think social media is often this too, like this... The, you have the ones that are like, yes, of course, we're going to cancel this company because of all these mm-hmm. reasons. But then also the other side who's like, this is just social justice warriors, whatever, and yeah. blah, blah. And then then go full force against that as well, um, which is just the fuck. Um, so that's always, especially when you ha- have to handle it via social media, I think it's really tricky as well because you have these both hardcore sides. They just clash with each other and then that only lasts for a year where if you had other measures then it would probably be easier for you to just say this is not this is not acceptable and you're out of 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 anything now yeah like i can say you're not welcome at breakout i can Mm. do that 100 i can put policies into the igdn for a safety board to report these people too so they can't be in the igdn it's a hundred member trade org woo woo (laughs) right like i can do it where i am at but i can't directly influence the wider RPG community with a lot of buy-in and a lot of work. Um, So the best way I do it is trying to do that in the space as I'm in and model what I hope to see elsewhere. I try really hard not to be a person who attacks people on social media, mostly because I've only seen harm and hurt come out of it. Mm. Um, It's not personally within my ethics to do it. Um, Within the indie RPG space, I will say, because a lot of what I've seen is character assassination and dogpiling, and no one's actually looking for justice or healing. They're, they're angry and traumatized. Um, and I think that's appropriate for certain people. I do think that's super appropriate for people um, who are rampant abusers and that kind of stuff. But when we're talking about like, you made a misstep and then you're kicked out of a community for it. Um, I don't understand what that's going to grow in the long term. And that could just because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that could be that. Um but I don't think it fixes the problems. I think it just creates smaller cohesive groups that are vengeful um, and aren't looking at a way to actually change things, if that makes sense. Like they're not looking at it from a systemic level, Mm. which is fine. Not everyone will. Yeah. So I try to look at things from a systemic level, uh, which is funny. Right before we got on the call, I was talking to my partner about it because I'm uh, in a bit of a, bind with someone that I hold a contract with where they misstepped and it's like some people are like oh we should just get rid of them we don't need to work with them and I'm like how are we going to teach them anything if we just get rid of people instead of do the fucking work Hmm. Uh, because I was in this class one time on restorative justice and there was a kid who had vandalized some piece of property and the um the elder in the community was like One, why did he do that? But two, how is it we failed him to allow him to do that? And how are we as a community not ensuring he's getting what he needs? So anytime I see like something happening in a space that I work on, my question is always like, how did we as a community fail the situation? Um, And what can we as a community then do to protect people from it happening again and help the people who are involved in it? Um, And that's kind of where my ethos comes from is like, I, I look macro 
which means I fuck up micro a lot. I'll, I'm not going to lie. Because I'm so busy looking at the big picture that I'm like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? Oh, shit. <laughs> but I think it's a really important work that it is that you're doing there because, as you say, it's so it it's so important that you look at the why have things gone wrong in the first place and how can we change the structure and the systems that make these things happen over over and over again so it's not like there's always the individual that is the problem but it's the the bigger thing it's the structure it's the systemic racism it's the systemic sexism it's all that that's the problem and how can we fix it and we can only we can't fix it for the world entirely but we can fix it in the place or try to work on that in the mm -hmm. places that we're in and it's so great that you're doing that totally not fangirling here <laughs> <laughs> It was a lot of education to get to that point. Uh, yeah, for sure. I believe that. Um, now, TP TTRPGs are predominantly male, um, historically male. So how is that changing? Constitutes. <laughs> <laughs> how is that changing um, in recent years, especially with the work that you're doing um, to bring inclusion uh, like and gender diversity as well, like not just for women, but for marginalized genders as well? Well, I mean, the face of conventions are changing pretty rapidly. It's pretty cool to go to a place like uh, Pax and Plug that's mostly young and queer, right? It's really, really queer. And it makes me so happy to see a lot of women and marginalized genders there um, actively playing games. And I'm sure there's still the worry of what happens if, but they don't seem, because they're young, they're new, uh, they don't seem to come in with that, like, 16 years of bullshit the rest of us had to put up with to get here and then they will experience bullshit i'm not saying that's not the case um but that face is changing through open invitation uh through newer spaces being created pax unplugged is quite young i think it's in its would be its third year maybe it's very okay. young versus established spaces like origins or gen con where all you mostly see are, are straight white men everywhere and because these these prolific designers have a long history of big games. Uh, people continually invite them as the guests of honor. And so they signal that the most important people in this industry are still straight white men. Mm. That is slowly changing as people get the message. Um, but it's slow going. Like even this year with the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of missteps from a lot of big industry people. And Last year with like, I think maybe two years now with the Me Too movement, there was a lot of missteps from a lot of big names. So I think those people are still in those power positions. And a lot of people don't understand that the whole ethos of community building and power structuring is that once you've done what you need to do, it's your job to get the fuck out of the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, right? like my job is to make breakout as good as it can be and then hand my power off to someone with different intersections and more marginalizations than I have because they will do a better job than me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did with Toronto Area Gamers. I got it to where I could no longer sustain it. Me personally, I mentored some people and I handed it over because I couldn't in good conscience continue to hold that much power. Um, and in terms of the IGDN, what's really lovely about it is it's a two-year turnover. So you can't stay in power longer than two years. I could have run again, but like, what's the point of that? I've done what I've come to do. I've moved it from a hobby space into a professional space. We're now an MPO and have a lot of policy and procedure we didn't have before. Um, and now someone with more intersections than me is taking it over, right? right. And Omari is going to do cool 
cool things with it because Omari is awesome. Mm. Um, but that is your job as a community leader is to get the fuck out of people's way when you're no longer necessary. Mm. Right? At least on a community level, we're not talking about corporate community here because like my job at Magpie Games is to organize their community, but it is a corporate community. It is not an organic community space for the people by the people. It's it's about our products and it's celebrating those products and bringing people who like our games together. It's a fan space, right? Mm. Um, but we're, if we're talking about conventions and community spaces, like it's the job of those organizers to bring people on the team to better run it than they can and to hand them the projects they need to be handed in order to make those spaces better. And if that won't happen, like if you see a leadership team that's not super diverse and people come in that are diverse and then leave over and over again. It's because they're not being listened to. That makes a lot of sense. So I think that's the stepping stone I see missing a lot in the gaming industry is the realization that you've come, you've helped, you need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard because yeah. they're your babies, right? You don't want to let go of them, but it's like you have to go. Otherwise at some point you just become a gatekeeper of the wrong kind. Mm. Mm. And it allows you to move on and bring your like knowledge and, and experience and change to somewhere else as well. As your skill set grows and changes, so does your understanding of things. Um, there's a really important part of, um, it's called adaptive leadership, where there's a phrase called getting on the balcony, which is where someone who's newer to a space can get on the balcony and look down on the space and see what's going on from above. But the longer you're in that space, the less and less your ability to get on the balcony and the more all you see is dancing around you. Right? And once that point happens, you can't lead them anymore. Because you don't, yeah. can't, you're not able to look at it anymore. And then exactly. what are you representing and what are you working um, with when you don't see what what is going on yeah and honestly game design is similar you can work on your game and you can see it from above only so long before mm -hmm. you're so entrenched in the game design yeah. part where you're like i don't even know what i'm working on anymore it's valid for so many areas in life whatever kind of work it is that you're doing whatever kind of hobby it is that you're doing if you crochet if you knit for too long and you're like where am i where is this taking me where am i how many stitches and what have i done and what is even going on so yeah yeah in terms of diversity though we are seeing more and more marginalized people across the various levels of intersections come uh, and have stronger voices in the community But the, the rules around their engagement are still very cruel. Like if you're a popular person from a marginalization that got there through being loud, which is usually how you get there, which is how I got there, um, mm -hmm. you're really only allowed to be loud then at other people once you're there. You're not allowed to like talk about the industry anymore in a disparaging way. You're not allowed to call out your peers on their bullshit. You have to play nice and you have to play by the rules or you will be discarded. Um, and that's still a big thing. Um, and that's where I think we need to do the most work is handing our spaces over to to younger, more marginalized people and provide them whatever they need to, to make the spaces better. Um, I work with the diversity sponsorship for the IGDN where we raise money under uh, Camden Wright is the current head of the program. And so we raise money for eight marginalized designers and we have them do one-on-one -on -one interviews with whoever they want from the industry. Uh, and we connect them with publishers and we connect them with producers and we connect them with project managers and we connect them with anyone they need to make the game happen. And then we do corporate seminars as well where, where actual companies will teach them what they need to make a game. Uh, and then we give them money to put whatever they need 
towards it. It can go towards the game, their rent, their food. It doesn't matter because they know what they need more than we do. And I wish I saw more of that in the industry. Yeah, especially marginalized groups. It's often the basic resources that are missing. It's not the skill or anything else that is lacking so much. It's like, where do I get my food? I don't have time to focus on something that I'm really good at because I need to get food on the table or or take care of my family and I need money for that and I'm not making money from the thing that I'm doing right now. So I need to, I don't know, work at a grocery store or whatever instead. And so that's like amazing that you give them like this resource and that they can use in whatever way they need to use it. Yeah, Camden does a phenomenal job with the program. He was actually one of the winners think three years ago now um and now he runs the program um and it's been such a phenomenal growth he raised like eighteen thousand dollars this year for the winners so nice. it was really cool yeah nice oh wow <laughs> that's amazing um before i ask you our last question kate was there anything else that you wanted to bring up about everything that you're doing in ttrpgs oh um uh anything i wanted to bring up no i think i covered a lot of things there i think the key is like um, things are hard, especially for marginalized people and women and marginalized genders, and things will will still be hard. And the key to remember is that you're not alone. Like there are people out there to reach out to, and there are communities out there that are safer. Um, no community is 100% safe, just because that's not even a reality for humans. <laughs> it's not an option, just because of the inherently innoble nature of trauma. Um, but there are safer spaces and there are places where you can make and forge real connections and play fun games. And those are really precious. And I really hope people um, try to find those spaces for themselves and while challenging themselves to do cool things in games, right? Amazing. So my last question is gonna tie into that because I'm making it a two-parter because that's mm -hmm. how I like to do things here. Um, so how would you, or what advice would you give to women and marginalized genders around like mid thirties who don't have a lot of experience. So like people like me and Monica, how do we get involved in these communities, um, in these games and make some, you know, not only learn the games and have fun, but also put a positive spin and make some changes. I mean, those are two separate questions, right? Like one is like, how okay. do I become a more experienced gamer in a way? And one is how do I then gain some power? Because those are two separate <laughs> things. Um, so the first one is... Sorry, easy. I like to throw it all out there. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it's good. So the first one where you're like, how do I get involved in communities? A lot of them are digital nowadays. Um, and it's tricky because some of them will seem great and they're not. <laughs> and there are some that you're never going to hear about them unless someone thinks you're an okay person. Um, the best thing to do unfortunately right now is like go to Twitter and follow some people and then weed them out as you realize they don't match your ethos. Mm. Um, there are a couple spaces that I think are pretty great. And there are a couple spaces I would recommend people stay far away from, but those are private conversation recommendations. I'm not gonna attack people on air because that will not go well for me long-term. <laughs> <laughs> but really find a couple people that, match your ethics to a certain degree and then just ask them like hey where do you game where do you find people conventions are a really nice way to meet people that you might have a a connection with um we and discords are a big thing right now so finding fan-based discords that you like like this particular brand of games in and connecting with those people 
Um, but a lot of people meet now through Twitter, which is what it is. And um, we don't really have a space anymore where you used to go to talk to people. Like there used to be G+, which oddly enough was just where gamers lived forever and all the big conversations happened there. And now those don't happen. Um, so most of the people I met through meetup groups and through conventions is how mm -hmm. I ended up meeting most people. And then you kind of have to decide which pillar of gaming you love the mostest. So if you are a trad person, if you love D&D or um, Pathfinder, then there are fan groups for those. And trad tends to be a little bit more dude heavy than I would say the other pillars of gaming, just because it has like uh, 50 years of history. Mm. I think he's 50, almost 60 years old now, maybe even 60. Yeah. Uh, so it's got a big history. It's got multi-generational history. And as a result, it tends to have a spectrum of gamers that go to it that are dudes and white dudes and straight dudes in it. But it attracts more people than any other pillar of gaming because it is the only one on the shelves at Walmart. Mm, okay. Mm, right? It's owned by Hasbro. It is owned by oh. a major corporate entity. It has power and reach that we don't. It's on Stranger Things. Um, mm. So it's going to attract the most number of people. And then from there, people will usually dabble in some other stuff. Um, on OSR side, which is stuff that emulates like first edition D&D. So um, that tends to be really mechanically crunchy and attract people who are very eccentric. Um, I really like them. I really like the OSR crowd. They're eccentric. They're cool. They are like anarchists in their own way. In a really fun <laughs> way. Um, and so their game design is really bananas. Like, I don't know if you've seen Morkborg, but it just came out this year and it won a bunch of awards. And it is like the most bananas art book version of an RPG you've ever seen. It's so cool. Nice. Um, so the rules are sometimes super helpful or sometimes you're like, I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah those people tend to be really like chaotic in terms of their design and it tends to be feel like old D, D. so it's still got a lot of crunch a lot of numbers a lot of d20 um and then there's indie which is like people who really want to play story above mechanics so they make a joke that if you have like 2d6 and an index card you have an indie game and they're not wrong um so <laughs> those people tend to be um, OSR has a lot of diversity too. So does Indie. It has a lot more diversity than the trad pillar. Um, and then lyrical games, which are story art house pieces. Um, really, really interesting stuff. They're doing very experimental, um, super, super diverse, but also quite young. So it's finding which of those pillars resonates with you most and then finding your spaces in those and entering the conversation and playing, playing games is your key. There are some paid programs you can engage with. Like uh, for Magpie, I run a curated play program where you have a professional GM run the games for you. Um, and uh, so those are some of those programs are out there now. There's paid GMing on another website I can't quite remember, but um, it's quite popular right now too. So those are places where you can actually meet people. And I've seen friendships form out of those where people go play games together. Now, getting your piece of power in the corner of your landscape is going to require you to be loud to a certain degree and do a lot of work. I got into it through blogging. I started writing blog pieces. People started listening. And then I started getting offered token jobs where it's like, oh, we have a woman on the team now. <laughs> so that happens less, but it still happens. Uh, the nice thing is if you want to like carve out space, the things most people respect are design. So designing a game will get you further than being a community organizer any day of the week. 
podcasting in an effective way and reaching crowds is a really good way to get social power too. So you could continue what you're doing, or if anyone out there is listening, wants to launch a podcast, launching a podcast is a good way to do it or a Twitch stream. Um, And a lot of people will gain followers that way. And then model their fan spaces off of how they want to see the gaming community modeled. And that will also give you social reach. That's, that's great advice. Thank you so much. Um, my brain is ticking personally, and I'm sure Monica's is as well. Um, and I'm going to ask you uh, the second part of that question. And that's what advice would you give to younger kids, the, the, the new generations coming into TTRPGs? Don't listen to the old people. <laughs> Don't let them make you feel invalid. Don't let me make you feel invalid. Don't let anyone tell you you're doing it wrong because the way we're doing it is not work. <laughs> no one's paid enough. No one makes enough money. No one makes enough to, like I do and a few people I know do, but the blessed few of us who have a full-time gig in RPGs is very small. The whole industry, including Gen Con, including WotC, like Wizards of the Coast D&D, including every Patreon, all of it, is worth $54 million. It costs more to make a video game than the amount of money all of us make. Wow. So it is radically unsustainable overall. And to try to come into the space is to acknowledge your fight is going to be uphill. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. Um, But like the people above me aren't going to change it. I'm certainly now part of the system, so I'm probably not going to change it. And so people younger than me need to like kick our asses and take Mm -hmm. names and uh, not put up with our bullshit and create more sustainable models and figure out ways to encourage RPGs to have a further reach. Um, But like yelling on Twitter about it is not going to change anything. (laughs) So coming in with actual work that you're going to do and like, Internet activism has its time and its place, but it's going to be through actual work and instituting policies and procedural changes and demonstrating actual movements and creating guilds and creating shared spaces um, Mm -hmm. and making your own projects that pay people in equitable rates. That's going to be how you affect change. Yelling at a creator on Twitter isn't going to deeply impact them because their fans don't care. Yeah, true. So like, Wizards of the Coast has repeatedly promised to affect change about their active racism. Have they done anything in a year? No. Are they going to? Why would they? Like, are the Vistani still part of the Curse of Strahd? Yes, they are. We can't stop D&D from doing what it's doing. So what is the answer? That's where we need to look at things. Is like, where do we affect change on a massive level enough that we can challenge Hasbro? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we can't do it if we're all yelling at each other. Yeah, for sure. Right? It has to be a unified front. And I don't know how we do that reach. I don't know how we beat Walmart. Can anybody at this point? <laughs> I mean, David at some point beat Goliath. So hopefully not entirely hopeless. Because if we just say we there is no chance that we will ever like conquer anything bigger, then we can just crawl up in the corner and wait for life to be over so and that's my point like i want to see that change and i'm working on it my company is working on it through the methods that are currently the best way in a capitalistic system but like what's what are we gonna do with the younger generation coming in saying everything is fucked and i'm like yeah you're right and (laughs) um that's what i'm really curious to see is like what's the game plan the actual work and that model needs to be outside of what we as established professionals think because we benefit from the system. Those kids coming in, I want them to burn it down. <laughs> I 
love that so much. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Amazing. That was all very serious. I'm very sorry. No, <laughs> no, no. no, no. I think this was a conversation that's really important, really needed. And we need to have more of these kind of conversations, you know, to enact change ourselves, but also to encourage, like you say, the younger generations to burn it to the ground. Like I'm here for it. Let's see it happen. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to have a lot of links in the show notes that have been mentioned. Um, so thanks to Kate and to Gemma in Twitch chat, who was dropping links to most things that were mentioned. They'll be in the show notes. And what else will be in the show notes is where we can find Kate online. So Kate, if you just want to tell us where we can do that. My Twitter handle, because that's where we live, is at BlueStockingETC. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as Kate Bullock. Um, I think it's like facebook.com slash bluestockingetc or something like that. Um, my website is bluestockings.ca. And the company that I work on with my partner, Uniform Motorcycle Games, is umg.rocks. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. We'll put all that in the show notes. And we will see you next week for another amazing episode of Geek Caring. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode of Geek Caring, why not leave us an iTunes review? You can also find us on social at Geek Caring and over on geekcaring.com. 